The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Okay, welcome back to Off the Wall. We have an episode today that is maybe not for everyone, but we're stepping into the quagmire of Medicare. So if you are approaching age 65 or you know someone who's approaching age 65, this is the episode for you. Dave is out today, but I have a fabulous co-host here, Emily Harper. Hi, Emily. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Yeah. For those of you who don't know Emily, Emily is also a partner at Monument Wealth Management, and she is also a certified financial planner. So she, like me, works with clients around Medicare. But the real person I want to introduce today is is our guest, John Norse. John is the founder of Medicare Portal, which helps people understand and navigate their Medicare journey through education, enrollment assistance, and lifelong support. John's been helping clients with their health insurance and Medicare needs since 1988. So he really knows his stuff. I think you'll tell through this conversation, he really has a passion for Medicare and really knows what he's talking about. And every time I talk to him, I feel like I'm coming away learning things. So welcome, John, to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to share our Medicare exciting content today. (laughs) Exactly. And this is obviously a really timely conversation because of those of you who don't know, Medicare open enrollment season is October 15th through December 7th each year. So, John, let's just do a very kind of quick definitions about the different parts of Medicare, kind of if you can just explain quickly what the different pieces are. So let's start with what is Part A? Yeah, sure. So Medicare, what we call original Medicare is A and B, created and started in 1966. So this year, Medicare celebrates its 56th year of operation. A is very simple. It's a very narrow benefit. It's going to be a physical inpatient stay in the hospital, outpatient rehab, hospice, and home care. That's all that Part A is. And for those that are unfamiliar, that's the payroll tax you pay each month when you work or your spouse is paid. That would ultimately allow you to get Medicare Part A at what we call premium free. Part B is really everything else about your health care, doctors, MRIs, CAT scans, preventative care, outpatient procedures, ambulatory care, anything durable medical equipment, anything cancer treatments, anything outside of really staying in a hospital that's going to be covered. And part B is technically optional because there is a premium that is associated with it. Again, I don't know what people would do without part B, but the point is I just want to make it clear it does have a premium. And then I'm sure we'll talk later about that premium is adjusted for your income, what you actually pay. Medicare part D, I'm going to skip ahead to you for a second. So part D is orally ingested self-administered medications. So things that you take on a daily basis for conditions, chronic conditions, even seasonal things, anything you get filled at the pharmacy, there are some shots included in part D, but overall part D is the drug plan. So A, B, and D is one option for people with Medigap. The second option is Medicare C, that's Medicare Advantage. And the reason I 
kind of saves it till the end is part C or any plan that files under Medicare Advantage is the combination of A, B, and D, but in a sense, not administered by the federal government, but by a private insurance or health provider. Right. It's kind of, I guess, similar to if you're used to, okay, you get health insurance through one of the big sort of companies we're all familiar with. Like this would be an alternative use rather than Medicare through the government, you would get it through one of these private insurance companies. We call it all in one. Everything's under, you know, co-pays, one ID card, real simple for you to navigate for those if that's important for them. And what about Part G slash Medigap slash Medicare supplement? Because, you know, we can't have one clear name for things. We have to have names that are confusing. (laughs) Sure. So for those individuals that choose to have their benefits administered through A and B, the scariest part about A and B is there's no spending limit. So for example, the Part B 20%, if you just took Part B, you would be exposed to a 20% coinsurance unlimited. So if you had $20,000 of doctor bills, potentially you're exposed to $4,000 of of expenses. A Medigap or Medicare supplement, which was created in 1966 along with A and B to help address those, does exactly that. It's a secondary payer, so it's not part of the federal Medicare program, but as a secondary payer, it will cover those gaps. And there's been, through the years, a number of letters that have changed. Right now, just under 50% of the Medigaps enforce are Plan F, The reason that Plan F is so popular, it pays 100% of your out-of-pocket expenses with Medicare. In 2020, the federal government stopped enrollment into those if you weren't 65 prior to 2020. They also allow people, though, if you are born before 2020 or 65, to get F still. But G is the plan that's most popular, and the only difference between F and G is what's called the Part B deductible, which for this year is $233. The winning part of that is though your premiums also lower on G than F. So you're not only saving money uh, each month, but typically that savings on your plan G will more than offset that $233, for example. So you're not losing anything if you're not getting F. Some people are worried about it. Right. So do you see a shift in whether people are choosing to go the route of the government-run Medicare Part A and B versus a Medicare Advantage plan? Yeah. You know, the thing that we find is that really at the end, like a lot of things in life, but Medicare is truly an individual decision. And it comes down to how historically you've consumed medicine. If you're someone that likes to be able to pick your own providers and have freedom of choice, very low out-of-pocket expenses, original Medicare with a supplement is going to be the right option for you. If you're someone who maybe sees limited providers or even more providers, but likes the convenience of having one plan and one card, then, you know, Medicare Advantage could be the right solution for you. It's the trend is moving towards Medicare Advantage today, all in, including those that are Medicaid eligible. You have about 26 million people of the 62 million on Medicare Advantage. Recent statistics say about 14 million are on supplements. So that's 40 of the 62 million. The other balance are either on government employer type plans could be VA benefits, TRICARE will constitute the other 22 million currently. Medicare is expected to grow to 80 million by 2030. So there's a lot of things that could potentially change with that kind of influx to meet that demand in terms of new plan designs. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's a lot of people, 80 million. Right. So can you talk about like, because I think when you initially sign up, tell me if this is right or wrong, the plan has to take you regardless of your health status. So does that mean that you have to, when you're picking, you're doing initial enrollment, 
at age 65 or potentially later, which we'll talk about in a minute, that you have to be really careful about what you're signing up for at the start because it might be difficult to change in the future. So let me answer that this way. So Medicare is parts A, B, C, D. There's never any underwriting for A, B, C, D. So if you have a plan C today, you could change to another plan C regardless of your health. If you have a plan D today and you want to change to another plan D, regardless of your health, you can do that. Where Medicare gets, in a sense, tricky is the Medigap because Medigap, as I indicated earlier, is a secondary payer. So they kind of, while they play in the same sandbox as the program, they have their own kind of set of rules. So one is relating to underwriting. So when you are first eligible for Part B, it triggers a six-month window called your Medicare Supplement Open Enrollment. And during that six month, as long as you apply, there's no pre-existing conditions. There's no waiting periods. There's nothing that would penalize you regardless of your health. You come in at the lowest rate and that's yours and you're on that plan in perpetuity unless you choose to change it. If you chose to change it, most of the states, I think there's four or five states that don't have underwriting. Most of the states outside of that six month window, if you decide to change your Medigap plan, you would have to go through a medical underwriting process. Now there is in the Medicare world, something called the trial right, that if you, when you initially enroll in Medicare and then your first year you're on a Medicare Advantage plan and then whatever, sometime in the future decide that you wanna go to a Medigap in that first year, you can leave that Medicare Advantage plan under a trial right and then join a supplement without any underwriting. That same concept applies that if you were on supplement for 10 years, and in an 11th year, you want to try Medicare Advantage, you get that one-year trial right. Where it becomes an issue is if you enroll in Medicare today for two years, say, on Medicare Advantage, and in that third year decide, you know, I want to get back to original Medicare with a supplement, that individual, in my example, would have to go through medical underwriting, again, in most states. Interesting. Okay. I didn't know about the trial right. There's also what's called the OEP open enrollment period that a lot of people don't know about for Medicare Advantage. And that allows people to, well, let me back up. People, all Medicare eligibles, all October 15th to December 7th can change their benefits. In January, from January 1st to March 31st, if you have Medicare Advantage and only Medicare Advantage, you get a second kind of redo to change your plans, but you only get one chance to change your plans during that open enrollment period starting in January, where during the AEP, technically, you could decide one plan the first day, one plan the second day. You change as many times you want. However, whatever the last plan filed by December 7th, that becomes your plan for January. So there's a lot that you have to think about when selecting a Medicare program that's going to work best for you in retirement. And one of the fun things about working with clients for Jessica and I is hearing what clients have planned for retirement. And sometimes it's very specific and they know exactly where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing. And other times it's a little fuzzy leading into retirement, especially if you're still working you know, close to age 65. So when you're picking a plan and you're faced with that age 65, decision. Do you need to think about what state you live in or what state you plan to retire in or may want to move to? Great question, Emily. One of the unknown facts of Medicare is it's actually filed by counties. So the state you live in is one thing, but even within your state, certain plans, particularly C and D, may not be available in all the counties in the state. So I can make a generic rule or comment of saying Medicare Advantage is available in every county in Virginia. I can say that. But the plans available, say, in Fairfax County may not be the exact same plans available in Rockingham County. 
But I can tell you that in our state, in Virginia at least, that there is a Medicare Advantage plan available in every county. So with that, we do take into account when we speak to clients, are you a snowbird? Are you someone that has multiple residences? Are you a traveler domestically or internationally? And again, we what drives all of that, Jessica, underlying is who are your doctors today? What are your prescriptions today? And match those up because Medicare Advantage plans are all network-based. So even if you love the plan, hypothetically, but Dr. Jones wasn't on that plan, it wouldn't behoove us to enroll you because seeing Dr. Jones now would be a cash situation, not an insurance situation. So sometimes the choices are made because of the fact that your provider or providers aren't participating with a certain plan. And that's their choice. It's just like with Medicare, a doctor can either elect to be part of the Medicare program and see patients or not. They obviously have that right to do that. Right. And one thing you mentioned there, John, that I get excited about is travel. And I know travel is something that a lot of clients really look forward to in retirement. You know, is there anything that people should think about when it comes to picking a plan and having great coverage while they're traveling, whether domestically or abroad? Sure. So I'll try to answer this really simply in the sense that if you enroll in an HMO plan, regardless of where you are, so a Medicare Advantage true HMO plan, once you leave that service area, you'll only be covered for emergencies. That's just how it works. And not just domestically, but internationally. Pretty straightforward. There's a new trend in Medicare Advantage where there are PPOs. Some of those PPOs have a nationwide network. So it could be a large health insurance company that you know we know of that now uses a you know similar concept where they're providing Medicare providers throughout the country. So that person that may live in Virginia who's traveling to see their family in Texas for a month, potentially that plan on a PPO would allow them to see a network provider in Texas. However, even if it was a non-network doctor, that PPO plan would allow them to see, quote, a Medicare doctor under their plan as an out-of-network claim, has to be a Medicare doctor. And then under Medigap, any doctor in the country that takes Medicare, technically you can see without a referral. So that same person that goes to Texas is chasing the kids around the house and you know slips and falls and wants to see an orthopedic. They literally can go on Medicare.gov, go to the provider search, put in their zip code, put in orthopedic, and have a list of orthopedic providers that they know take Medicare and start calling them up to try to find if they can see them on an appointment. No referral, no nothing. And the payment and claim is done as if they live here in Virginia. Because Medicare is a federal program, it's the same across the country. I want to go back to, because you're you're talking about Medigap, Medicare supplement plans, and, and, and I was just thinking back to, we were talking about, you know, do you need to think about what state you're going to be in? We were talking about that. So I had read that certain states will not allow providers to upcharge above what Medicare charges for something. So if Medicare pays 80% of an allowed Medicare cost, Medigap, reimburses the remaining. Like, do you need to be thinking about if I choose not to do Medicare supplement, if I not slash Medigap, does someone need to be thinking about in their calculus of would I potentially have to pay a lot more if I'm not in one of those states where there's a cap, there's a limit on providers upcharging. So potentially the provider could charge a lot more than Medicare. Medicare will only cover 80% of a certain amount and I could potentially be covering a lot more. Like, does that need to go into people's calculuses? 
Yeah, so I'll answer that in twofold because there's technically two products. So under Medicare Advantage, no matter what plan you choose, what provider you choose, those plans have a max out of pocket. They have a clearly defined maximum out of pocket. So this year, no matter what Medicare Advantage plan you're on, it can't be higher than 7550 for in-network claims. It can be lower, but it cannot be higher. So the stop loss on a Medicare Advantage plan is going to be that out-of-pocket maximum. If you go down the route of original Medicare with A and B, Part B does have what is called Part B excess. However, if your doctor or provider, the key word is called assignment. A provider, if they take assignment, means that they agree to take the Medicare payment as the full payment for your services. They will not, what's the famous term, balance bill you this Part B excess. If you buy a Plan G Medicare supplement anywhere in the country or Plan F for that fact, that covers your Part B excess. They cannot charge that to you under that contract. Plan N as in Nancy, Medigap, Plan N does leave you exposed to that Part B excess, which is 15%. And that doesn't matter what state you're in, Jessica. That Plan N is, again, standardized. One thing that I didn't mention about Medigap is that in 2011, the federal government standardized all Medicare supplement plans. And what I mean by that is no matter what state you live in, Plan G is the exact same Plan G. Plan N is the same as exactly the Plan N. Plan F is the same. So it helps the consumer understand if they're shopping for a Medigap that the benefits are the same and allows them with confidence to pick a plan, not to enroll in a plan and say, what's their co-pays or what's their co-insurance, I should say, for cancer? Is it different? Or hospital stays? They don't have to worry. If they choose G, it's the same no matter where they are. They choose F, it's the same no matter where they are. That is helpful. I think one thing before we move on to kind of talking about enrolling in Medicare at 65 and when you might not have to, I you are making me think of like these nuances. I think something that I've observed from clients and tell me if this is right or wrong, that At the very least, it's definitely worth reviewing your Part D coverage every year because during open enrollment, because it sounds to me like Part D plans, the monthly premium, the drug costs in each plans, that those will change kind of really drastically from year to year. And it it may actually be beneficial for you to literally change your Part D plan every year. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, when we work with clients, it's The medical part really is, for most of our clients, the easiest conversation. It's a list of providers. It's sometimes long-term relationships. But prescriptions, as we know, change. Our health changes. But sadly, a lot of the changes in prescription are outside of your control. You, You pick your pharmacy. You take your maintenance medications. You're doing everything you want. And then next year, your plan just decides to leave the market. They have that right. Or the next year, they decide to raise your premium. Everything, again, is filed with Medicare. It's fully compliant. But you have multiple moving parts within a Part D. Just quickly, you have tiers. There's five tiers. Every plan has five tiers. Tier one being the cheapest, tier five being the most expensive medications. Your drug could move from a tier one to a tier two, tier two to tier three, and that could have an impact on what you pay for that medication. It's just straight. That's what happens. There's four stages One's called the deductible phase, which we all know there's a deductible, the initial coverage, the revered coverage gap or donut hole, and then what's called catastrophic. Some plans will cover that deductible. This year, it's $480. Next year, it's going to 505. Some plans cover that, but you're going to pay a higher premium. Some plans may have a $100 deductible. They can assign it. You know, there's no, it's their choice to do that. 
But the moving parts of having a deductible, having your tiers change, having the medications, what's called a formulary. So every plan has a formulary, which is a list of medications on their plan that you can access. That formulary is created by all plans because HHS and CMS identify a little over a thousand conditions that exist for medicine and that every plan is required to have at least two prescriptions to resolve those conditions. So what happens is your drug could be on a formulary this year and then next year that provider negotiates a different, say, cholesterol medication. And now your cholesterol medication is no longer on their plan. You're faced with either changing it to that drug filing an appeal, which you have that right, but doesn't necessarily mean it'll be granted or paying cash for that medication and not having the benefit of insurance. So absolutely, Jessica, that's a great question. And we spend, I would tell you that overwhelming, you know, 50% or more of our time is spent reviewing our clients Part D, whether it's in a Medicare Advantage or a standalone, we spend our time doing that. Because remember on a Medicare Advantage plan, if you're getting your medical benefits and prescription through the same provider, if that formulary were to change drastically where your drugs aren't going to be covered, you now have to, you should go out and find a new Medicare Advantage plan because your prescription isn't going to change and your medical care is tied together. So you really have to stay in tune with what's happening with your medications and how that happens just as a side. Right now in, in September, your Medicare Part C and D providers are required to send you what's called an ANOC, an annual notice of changes to provide you with all that information I just went over, new deductibles, new premium costs, tier structures, things like that. That all comes in the mail this month. It has to by law. And if it doesn't, you call your provider and ask them to send it to you, whether you want an email or mail, but you can get it. It's very important to review that. Probably a longer answer than you wanted, but it's that important. But a good answer. Yeah, it's important. It's that important. Clearly, there's a lot to think about when it comes to choosing a plan, but there's also a lot to think about in terms of timing. It's not always quite as simple as you're turning 65 and it's time to sign up for Medicare. So what some people might not know is you can actually enroll in Medicare as early as three months prior to turning 65. But there might actually be some scenarios where you don't need to enroll at 65. I think it's becoming more common to see people working beyond 65. So John, could you talk to us about some of the scenarios where you might not actually be enrolling for Medicare at 65, like if you're still working and have group coverage or your spouse is still working? What are some things to think through there? Sure. So excellent question and obviously a very common conversation we have because Oftentimes, a client, whether it's your firm or just someone that comes to us at 65, will tell us their story. Hey, I'm working. Not sure I have to go on Medicare. Can you consult with me and tell me what we need to do? Absolutely. So the real defining question of your option to delay enrollment or enroll is simply this. The federal program has a guideline that if your employer has 20 or more employees, that can be full and part-time, you are therefore considered what we use the word creditable coverage and you can delay your enrollment into part B as in boy. It's all about part B. So if I work for John Norris Enterprises and we have a million employees, when I turn 65, as long as I'm working full-time and eligible for their benefits, I can remain on their health benefits and have no, I don't have to do anything. And I'll never face a penalty as long as when I, and we'll explain the back end, as long as on the back end, I do it properly. I won't face any penalties. 
Conversely, the three of us have a little consulting firm or we're three financial advisors, whatever our profession is. And I turn 65. I have to go on Medicare because my company is not 20 or more people. However, hypothetically, my wife works for my brother's company with that million employees. I can now jump on her health insurance and then delay further my enrollment into Part B. So if you have access to that large group insurance, whether through your own employment or through a spouse, you can delay your enrollment. But for everybody else that doesn't have access to that large group, you have to go on Medicare. And the challenge there is that for that under 20 group, I just want to make this clear that Medicare in their view becomes what's called the primary payer. So you're under 20. If you had a medical claim and remained on Medicare at 65 and you know, six months, you have a medical claim. The provider is going to anticipate sending that bill to Medicare first and then your insurance company. But if that doctor sends it direct to the insurance company and the insurance company is identified, your company is under 20 employees, they can reject that claim in full and say, send to Medicare first for adjudication, come back to us and we'll pay the balances or the gaps, kind of like Medigap. You don't want to be in that situation trying to figure out if your insurance is going to pay or not. That's why the federal guideline says under 20, get Medicare. There's brochures and booklets that we have. It's on their website. It makes it clear under 20 Medicare primary. And that's really what people need to know. And I've even had people call Medicare and say, I have health insurance. Do I need to go on Medicare? Medicare is going to go, no, you have health insurance. They're not going to ask the question. They shouldn't. It's actually a loaded question. Mm -hmm. So I want to, I want to circle back just to clarify one point. So you mentioned that if you it's a more than 20, you work for a company more than 20 employees or your spouse does and you can get health insurance for them. You said you don't need to enroll in Part B. Do you need to enroll in Part A regardless of, of you're still working for a company with more than 20 people? You know, do you need to do that at age 65? Yeah. So the standard answer to if you asked 100 you know, friends of yours, like, what did they do at 65? They'll all tell you they got Part A. And they're, and they're right. The majority should have. There's one real caveat, and again, Medicare being as confusing as it should be, or is, kidding, is that if you fund a health savings account, and only a health savings account, not FSA, not HRA, an HSA, you fund it. You are the actual person that takes money out of your paycheck and puts it in the account. You cannot have Medicare of any part and fund that HSA. So, a client comes to me and says, hey, John, I'm 65. I'm going to work for five more years. And I fund an HSA and I love it. And I fund it, matter of fact, from my wife and I, and we max fund it. Great. But the only thing you need to know is that when you are ready to retire, you terminate your HSA payments six months prior to your actual enrollment in Part B. The reason that is, is once you pass 65, Medicare will retroactively start your Part A six months. And you cannot overlap HSA payments when you have Part A. So real life example, I'm going to apply for Part A right now, and it's going to start on October 1st. They will retroactively start my Medicare Part A in March. So any payments I had can only be applicable for January and February. And beyond that, it's 112th in January and February. I can't try to slip in the 3600 in January because the calendar works. Medicare is going to look at it as, no, you have one twelfth. That means six months are negated. You put in 3,600. 
not only the six months that March started, but now the rest of the year, you're going to be on Medicare Part A. You're going to have a penalties and interest for 10 months of that 3,600. And then you're also going to get what's called an excess penalty. So you have to coordinate Part A if you're funding an HSA with your retirement. Okay. But if you're not doing an HSA, you can go ahead and enroll in Part A at 65, still working yep. for a company over 20 people. Yep. Okay. And then in the same sense, if the working spouse does not get A, but the non-working spouse or the non-insured spouse on the group plan, they can get A because they're not actually funding the HSA. It's the person who actually writes the check, as I call it. If Jessica writes the HSA check, Jessica can't go on Medicare. But if Jessica's married and her spouse turns 65, they can go on A and it won't impact because they're not funding the HSA. The reason for that, if you want to get nerdy and it's a real simple answer, is that Part A is not considered a high deductible health plan. Simple as that. That makes a lot of sense then. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So we've talked about timing. I think for a lot of retirees, the biggest concern they have is maybe what Medicare is going to cost. They're coming to Medicare after maybe having years and years of employer-sponsored coverage, which is relatively low cost for a lot of people. And what a lot of people maybe don't know is that what you pay for Part B and D is impacted by what's called the income-related monthly adjusted amount. That's a mouthful, so sometimes people call that IRMA. John, could you explain to us what IRMA is and how it impacts what people actually pay for parts B and D? Sure. So in 2006 was when the IRMA first impacted B, and then in 2011, they added D. And what happens is basically... It's surrounding your MAGI, your Modified Adjusted Gross Income. So I'm not an accountant and we don't give tax advice, but what little I know is that you obviously have your gross income and everybody knows what your adjusted gross income is. For simplicity and common conversation here, your MAGI is your adjusted gross that could have some things added back. So your MAGI could be slightly higher than your adjusted gross income. So what happens is Medicare looks at a two-year look back to determine your current premium. So in 2022, whatever your earnings were in 2020, that's what they would base your Part B premium on in its entirety. And then for Part D, we call it kind of a surcharge because you still have to pay the Part D premium, whether it's within a Medicare Advantage plan or standalone plan. And then on top of that, the government adds this Part D surcharge. So how is it formulated? So Part B, because it's one single payment, just like people that understand health insurance, when you work for an employer, there's an actual rate that, say, a single person pays. It could be $500, but that employer decides to share in that cost with you. And you go, oh, I only pay $100. You don't know the real cost. So how Medicare determines the Part B premiums is that your base premium is 25% of the actual insurance cost. So I'm good for this year's numbers because they're easy. The actual Part B cost is $680.40 a month. 25% of that is $170.10. So $170.10 is what's called the base Part B premium. That's the base premium. And other than those that might receive some kind of government assistance, everyone in the Medicare program pays that each month. Where IRMA kicks in is as your income goes up, that payment goes up. And how it goes up, it's pretty simple, is your share of that 680. So for example, the second bracket, if you go up above 
from the first bracket, which are determined from Medicare at 91,000 and 182,000. So a single person's quote MAGI from two years prior, if it's under 91,000, they pay the 170,10. If you're married, it's 182. So if you go above that 91,000, but less than 114,000, you now pay 35% of that 680, 40. And if you go above 142 as an individual, you now pay 50% of that 680, 40. And for time's sake, the highest bracket, those individuals are paying 85% of that 680, 40. And that for an individual would be an income over 499,000. And then for a married couple over 750,000. So they're, I mean, it's a significant, but still you're paying 85%. The Medicare Part D is calculated off the same chart, the same incomes. It's just the way they calculate it's a little quirky, but in a nutshell, it's the same concept. The calculation, it's not worth it. The point I'm making, there is a Part D will start this year at $12.40 surcharge. So if you're in that 91 to 114 or 182 to 228, you're going to pay $12.40. And if you're in the highest bracket for Part B, you're going to pay a total of $578.60. And if you're the highest IRMA charge for prescription, it's $77.90. So the government, because your income, you're paying almost, call it $500 more a month because of your income. So you talked about the the two-year look back in terms of determining what your IRMA bracket is. Can you appeal your IRMA bracket if you've had a change in income? For example, I'm thinking like a very logical one is, is you retired and you stopped receiving salary income. So you've had a big change in your income, but because of the two-year look back, it's determining your IRMA bracket on when you were earning a salary. So can you can you appeal your IRMA bracket? The answer is yes. And the form is used, it's called an SSA 44. It costs nothing to appeal other than if you're going to mail it, you mail it in the post office, it costs you a stamp, you can drop it off, but you cannot complete it online, you cannot complete it over the phone. And you're right, Jessica, there's eight reasons that you can appeal your IRMA. So this most common one is that I'm 67 years old. I'm going to now retire from working for my company. At 65, I was working, but I'm not now. So they file it under work stoppage. I'm stopping work and my income, I'm just going to be a single person, was 150000 when I was working and now it's 75000 because I'm retiring. On the SSA 44 form, I would check work stoppage. I provide the date of my work stoppage. I put the income that I'm estimating to make, and then I need to provide some form of documentation, i.e. say a letter of resignation, a letter of termination, a letter of separation, something that indicates that I will no longer be working. You put those documents together in a letter and you mail it in. You want to do that within 60 days of your Part B approval. That's when you're going to get, obviously, the most impact from it. Now, if if you do appeal and it takes time, pay your full premiums that you're getting your bills for with the IRMA adjustments. And if you are successful in it, they will send you a single check rebate for all the excess that you've paid. But you never want to find yourself in a situation not paying Part B because if you don't pay Part B, you don't have Part B. And if you don't have Part B, you don't have Medigap. If you don't have Part B, you don't have Medicare Advantage. So even if you know you're going to win your appeal, you're super confident, don't take for granted making those payments. That's a great point. Our capital gain realization, is that a reason that you can appeal? 
unfortunately, the eight reasons are marriage, divorce, death of spouse, work stoppage, work reduction, loss of income producing property, loss of pension income, and then employer settlement payment. That's it. So like we always tell people, like if you're doing Roth conversions and things like that, you know, do that more than two years prior to retirement. Yeah. Prior to Medicare enrollment, I think something as planners we like to talk about is potentially doing a Roth conversion in the years after you retire, but before you are 72 and required to start your required minimum distributions. However, this is kind of a good kind of wrench in that is is an understanding that maybe if you do choose to do that, that it may impact what your Medicare premiums are going to be. And realize it lasts one year. I always say I hate to spend people's money. I do. I don't. I'm one of those few people that doesn't like to spend other people's money. But, you know, you just it's one year. So if you did, you know, do it. And obviously there's an overall tax benefit for you. That's why you're doing a Roth conversion. Obviously, you guys are the professionals in that world. But someone's going to do a Roth conversion because it truly benefits them. The IRMA penalty lasts one year. And I know you're probably not happy about it, but it's one year. It's not something that's going to stick with you for the rest of your Yeah, I think a big misnomer about IRMA is that someone's been very successful and has earned a high income and that they feel like when they enter Medicare, that that's set for the rest of their life. So, you know, I'm just using an example. I'm someone who's crazy successful. I own multiple business and I get paid a million dollars a year. They feel like if they come into Medicare making a million dollars, that they're going to be at the highest level forever. That's not true because if the next year I've worked with pros like Jessica and Emily, and they have my income down to a hundred thousand, I'm only going to pay based on a hundred thousand because my Irma appeal will justify because of my work stoppage, I only make a hundred grand. So, you know, sometimes I don't want people to be afraid to retire or go into Medicare that their high income now is going to be something for the rest of their life that would haunt them financially, potentially. Although it's not a bad thing to be successful, but, you know, don't be afraid to go into Medicare knowing that you can appeal it. So, I mean, health insurance and healthcare costs in general are obviously, it's a major retirement expense for everyone. So how are Medicare expenses projected to change over the next decade? We were in an interesting, you know, the pandemic obviously increased a lot of utilization. So Medicare costs, just like all health insurance costs, were on the rise rapidly. You know, the hopes are that it's going to kind of stay in line. Medicare has grown at about 6.9% premium average. So if you project rule out of 72 in 10 years, if we're at 170, we could be as high as 340 in 10 years. One interesting development, and I'm going to get into weeds quickly, but Adahelm was an Alzheimer's medication that was initially approved by Medicare. Uh, I believe there's over a million people with Alzheimer's currently that would have received this treatment. It was $86,000 per treatment. Then it was negotiated down. This year's Part B premium there was the largest increase ever in the history of Part B. $10 of that monthly cost was allocated to pay for that Adahelm. So the fact that this Adahelm is no longer going to be that cost and be available to 86 or to the million people, we anticipate Part B next year hopefully coming in maybe with zero increase, maybe remaining at the 170, which would be a good benefit. I know Social Security just came out with a 8.7% adjustment, which I understand, but I'm not someone who's an economist, but with that kind of increase, it does free up Medicare to raise their premium. So I don't have the answer. I I literally every day I'm scouring my sources to find out that Part B because I'm just interested to to help my clients 
for next year start planning, but I don't have that number yet. And last year, what they actually, what they initially released and what they came out with were two different ones, unfortunately, because we were told a lot lower number than what ultimately came. We were being told 158. So it went from 148, we were told 158, and then it went up to 170 and everyone was blown away. Everyone. Hmm. Are there any government regulations on how much Medicare premiums can increase per year? Yeah. Again, I would love to find someone who's a, a true knowledgeable resource on that, but they are tied together in that Medicare Part B, I know, cannot increase more than the increase in Social Security. That's what I've been told. So that's why I'm saying if it went up 8.7, your check, Medicare couldn't go up 20%, but it could raise 8.7. What about regulations on on how much a Medigap plan or a Medicare Advantage plan can go up each year? Yeah, so two different things. Medigap, because it acts as a secondary payer, is going to raise or be increased potentially for two reasons, your age and then the utilization. There are plans that are called community-rated. And those plans will go up. Everyone, for those who don't understand community rating, that's everybody shares equally regardless of your age and the claims. So if the utilization of the group goes up, your cost goes up. But it doesn't go up because your age, because everybody pays the same premium. Then there's what's called attained age, which is your current age. So I'm 65. I have Medicare supplement next year at 66. I share with the people at 66, but my premium goes up because I'm a year older. That's one factor in attained age. And then the second factor in attain age is what is the actual utilization of that cohort. And then the next year I go to 67, my rate goes up because I'm going 66 to 67. And then what was the utilization of that cohort or group or pool, they call it. So it, depending on what your supplement is, your rates could be more moderate or they could be more extreme. But Medicare Advantage is not tied to your age or utilization as supplement is. So if a premium is the average national premium is $19. So if you're on a plan that costs $19, as long as the utilization and the benefits offered by that insurance company can still be administered at $19, they're not going to raise it. But for whatever reason, they want to raise that rate with Medicare, they, Medicare Advantage, they would, but it wouldn't be age discriminatory. It would be just, or gender discriminatory for that fact. It would be just, if you're in that Advantage plan, they assign the cost, that's it. Okay. But I guess maybe something to be aware of is because they're private insurance companies, they don't have that. You can't raise more than social security. I mean, I hear what you're saying as far as they can't discriminate based off of age or gender, but potentially they could just decide, you know, for the whole, I don't know, their whole cohort, they're raising it a higher percentage in that year. You know, like there's nothing that sort of caps them, I guess, on their Yeah. So Medigap, again, yep, Medigap has no tie to anything other than just as an insurance company underwriting risk. So the same in that if an auto insurance company would underwrite their auto risks and one year everyone had accidents, their costs go through the roof. The next year, no one had accidents. The rates stay the same for argument's sake. So supplement, that's why I'm saying it's sometimes people, and it's not, no fault of theirs, they, they couple it or group it with Medicare because obviously it works with Medicare. But that's why one of the first comments I sent, Medicare's ABCD, Medigap's outside of it. That's why I'm saying they have rules they play by but at the end of the day, they're running a business as an insurance company, not as a government contractor, say. Right. So just something to be thinking about as you sort of pick your your plans, pick your how am I going to approach Medicare and just knowing that what potentially could have a big price increase over time and what potentially could have a less price increase over time. So just That's things right. to think about. That's right. There's no doubt about it. Finding a good company 
from the outset is absolutely worth it. Like a lot of things, don't make the mistake of buying a cheap rate or a company that may be brand new to the market and you don't know it. It's like, there's nothing wrong with those. I'm not, just do your homework, right? Do your homework. I typically tell people in Medicare, don't ask your friends because everyone has a different experience. They have different medical utilization. They may have a different budget, but there's time to say, ask your friends, like, how did you research? What did you go about? How did you arrive at your decision? But just to go back to my comment, if I say, what do you pay for Medicare? And you say, I pay $170 and 10 cents. And then I get a bill for $577. I'm going to call you and I'm going to go, why are you paying 170? And all of a sudden I realize, well, Jessica makes a whole lot less money than me. And again, that might be personal information, but my point is that's why the question you ask is loaded. Or you could, I use these examples when I do my, you know, speaking in our webinars. If you ask a friend of yours, do you have Medicare A and B? I sure do. Did you buy a supplement? No, I didn't buy a supplement. I didn't need it. Okay, great. I don't buy it. Well, what that friend didn't tell me is they have TRICARE for Life and TRICARE for Life is a supplement. You understand? So like, there's nothing wrong with either one of those asking the questions. They just didn't know the next question. So that's why you have to be careful when you ask your friends, what are they doing for their Medicare? Because everyone could be different. And I would almost tell you that everyone is different. John, clearly you have seen a lot of different Medicare experiences that people have had. And as advisors, I think we're all really invested in making sure our clients can be as successful as possible. So tell us about some of the biggest mistakes people have made when enrolling in Medicare that you've seen that can be avoided with some planning? So one point that I might not be the number one mistake, but the one point I want to make clear, and this goes back to our transition conversation when you're retiring, so you've worked past 65, is that as of today, now there is legislation that could change this, but as of today, one of the biggest mistakes you could make is assuming that COBRA after 65 is going to be your solution for your health insurance. And Again, it's a long, it's not a, that long conversation. I'm going to do my best, like I always do, to summarize it. But in a nutshell, COBRA cannot be your primary insurance. So it goes back to that conversation about if you have a large group employer, Medicare or your health insurance is primary. If you're under 20, Medicare is primary. The same thing with COBRA. COBRA cannot, regardless of your employer size, and more importantly, regardless of who pays for it, so I fired Jessica. I put her on Cobra. I said, I'm going to just pay for it because I'm a good guy. And you're, for the next year, you're going to have free Cobra. It doesn't really do you any good because if you don't have A and B, you're going to get only about 20% of your claims paid. And then there's also rules that if when you're offered Cobra, if you didn't have Medicare, when you enroll in Medicare, it actually cancels your Cobra. So the point I'm making is that if you are in a Cobra situation, and I'm talking to people out there. Make sure you talk to someone like ourselves, there's other people in the country, to get the right advice on what you need to do so that you do not leave yourself exposed to claims. That's the number one thing that you don't want to screw up. Another thing is if you are on COBRA and when your COBRA expires, that is not what's called a special enrollment period. So if I lose my COBRA in September right now and I think I'm just going to get B, I'd actually have to wait till January next year during the general enrollment period, and I'd start in July because they don't identify the loss of COBRA as being a special enrollment period. So those are two, like of all the mistakes we see made, it's oftentimes around COBRA because they're just not getting the answers about COBRA over 65. Now, if they have a spouse, one thing for clarification, do not say, oh, well, my spouse is under 65. They need the COBRA. They can keep COBRA. 
COBRA is an individual enrollment. I, as the employee that gets fired, I don't have to have COBRA for my wife and kids to have it. If I get fired, I go on Medicare, my wife and kids can get COBRA. So don't stay on COBRA that you think you need to have it for your family. Another kind of misnomer that people don't understand is that during your initial enrollment period, when you're turning 65, Emily's made the point you apply three months prior to turning 65. The key there is you'll start on your 65th birth month, the first of your birth month. The one caveat there is if you are born on the first of the month, so if you were born on September 1st, technically your initial enrollment period starts on August 1st. They predated a month. So be aware of that. But here's where it gets quirky. Again, ask your friend, oh, you got seven months. Don't worry about it. Oh, I don't have to worry about it. Perfect. If I miss, I'm born in September. If I applied right now, I would start on October 1st. Not the worst thing. I was eligible on the 1st of September. And it's not about Part B. Remember, Part A goes back six months. It's all about Part B. I'd start on October 1st. Well, what did that mean? Well, that means right now I can't get a supplement or a Medicare Advantage plan because I don't have Part B. You need Part A and B to have a supplement or Advantage plan. But because my Part A will retroactively back, I could have gotten, if again, I could apply for Part A right now, but still wouldn't start till October. But here's what people don't understand. If I apply in October... My benefits wouldn't start till December 1st. Medicare delays you two months. So if I miss that window of September and I apply in October, I have no Part B in September, no Part B in October, no Part B in December or November, meaning that I can't get a supplement, but I could get prescription, but it's all about B. I have no medical insurance. Literally, I have no medical. I don't have anything for Part B. And if I apply in November, they're going to delay me December, January, February. I won't start till February 1st. And if I apply in December, which is my last month of my IEP, I'm not going to start till March. So you risk not having full health insurance because the government is going to delay your enrollment into that. And whether you have an employer's insurance or not, IEP is enforced during the IEP. So you could maintain group insurance, obviously, during that window to help you. But if you don't have any group insurance available to you, It's just we can't emphasize enough enroll early so that you don't have one day or minute without health insurance. It's just too important to wait for that enrollment. That's great advice. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in terms of you hear, oh, you can enroll as early as three months prior to turning 65 or as late as three months after you kind of feel, oh, that gives me some breathing room. But really, you don't potentially. You you really need to start early. And to to tie in the COBRA thing and working past 65, you get, so I'm 67 again, making it my same. I get eight months from the loss of employer coverage to get A and B. The problem there is if I don't have B, I can't buy a supplement. The problem, if I don't have B, I can't get Medicare Advantage. So let's say I had A and I go on COBRA. That means I have A and COBRA. COBRA is going to pay the 20% of B. I am now an insurance company paying 80% of my claims because COBRA is not going to pay that as the primary payer. I can get D benefits for drugs, but even getting D could jeopardize your COBRA. My point is they tell you you have eight months, but there's no reason to wait. You're only going to put yourself in an adverse situation. And I, you know, I say this, you guys know me. I'd like to think I'm a pretty nice guy, a pretty optimistic and positive person. And when I have to tell these kind of hardcore things, it's like, I really emphasize them because I don't want people making these mistakes because it could be catastrophic. And sadly, there's nothing you can do. Like if you didn't enroll in Part B and then someone has a major hospitalization, they can't retroactively start Part B. You got to do it right the first time. And then we didn't even talk about it, but there's penalties. 
So if you lose employer coverage, you have 63 days to enroll in Part D, 63. Any Part D, so standalone D or Medicare Advantage D. If you don't do it within 63 days, you'll be ne- you'll be denied enrollment, have to wait till the open enrollment and pay a 1% penalty for every month you went without. So $33 times 1% is 33 cents a month. You're going to pay 33 cents for every month you didn't have coverage for the rest of your life. If you miss Part B, it's 10% for every 12 months that you didn't have Part B. And again, you could be impacted by that general enrollment period delay. So using my example before, someone has COBRA that ends now, they have to wait till September, then from September till July of next year. For argument's sake, they could face a 20% of that 170. They could be on the hook for an additional $34 plus IRMA. Right. I mean, we were talking about IRMA before. That's It's a year to year. It shouldn't change. But this is a mistake that would cost you for the rest of your life Forever. to be paying this. Penalty. But I just, right. My example is if you waited two years beyond that to actually get part B, you're going to have your base B premium again in the game. You're going to have your lifetime penalty of the 20%, just using the same as $34. And then you're still potentially going to have Irma, you know, as in play for everybody. So you could really put yourself in this outrageously expensive situation. You know, now again, you could peel Irma and not have the benefit of having no health insurance from August now till all the way July next year. We didn't talk about earlier, but our services cost zero, zero. We're independent, at least our businesses. We're compensated by insurance companies. It has no impact on the costs that you pay. We don't represent all the plans, but the plans we work with, we'd be more than willing to discuss with you. So if someone has questions about Medicare, we don't cost anything, whether it's today, tomorrow, the rest of your life. Get input or advice or or counsel from someone who does this so that you can make sure that you do the right things, avoid penalties. Our big thing when we talk to them is when you're losing coverage or when do you want to go on Medicare so that we don't miss one minute. I mean, Medicare only starts on the first of the month. So in retirement planning, tell your current employer your last date of employment is October 31st, November 30th, so that the next day your Medicare starts. Try not to leave yourself in a situation where you're losing health benefits on the 15th It's not the worst thing, but now you're going to have to buy Medicare for the whole month in November to cover those 15 days in November that you didn't have your health insurance for. So always be preparing. Again, someone like us with decades, you know, collectively our firm has hundreds of years of experience in this, you know, just get our opinion. Doesn't cost anything. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the main reasons that Emily and I love working with you, John, and and your colleagues at Medicare Portal is because like Monument, you are independent. So it's really, it's advice. It's not you're you're secretly selling a product because that's how you're compensated. So yeah. We love educating. This is the favorite part of my job. I love sharing my knowledge. I love hearing success stories, obviously with our clients, but if we helped even a listener here that goes a different route, I'm happy to have been part of their journey because your health insurance as we age, you could argue other than income is probably the most important thing. And making sure that you have access to care at an affordable rate is what we try to do every day for our clients. That's what we focus on, access and affordability. And, you know, I think leading with education like we do, we like to say that our clients are the smartest Medicare clients in the country. We, we really try to educate always during open enrollment, during the year, to just keep them on top of Medicare changes. Like, And one thing to keep an eye on is going to be this Part D legislation that was passed without getting into it because there's multiple levels. But 2024 is the first time we're really going to see some kind of impact from it. So again, you know, we'd love to share that. Maybe we have to do another podcast on that one when it happens. I was going to say, we'll have you back to talk about this. 
So again, John's company is Medicare Portal. You can find them at medicareportal.org. As he said, lots of helpful resources on there. There's blogs, educational videos, enrollment guides, links to important Medicare forms, webinars, events. And we're also going to link in the show notes here. Medicare Portal has a fantastic checklist of what to do prior to enrollment. It lays it out really clearly what you need to be doing three months prior on you know turning 65, kind of walks you through all the steps. So we're going to link that in the show notes. But John, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. This was fantastic. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoy it. And hopefully I could earn my stripes and get back here again. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, guys. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.